This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. Join us as Ann Foster discusses her new research on opium and transnational Southeast Asia. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another issue of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in the studio is Ann Foster. Welcome, Ann. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're, uh, we're excited to have you on campus. Anne is a, a professor in the Department of History at Indiana State, um, works on U.S. foreign relations, Southeast Asia, uh, imperialism. Probably maybe our listeners um, might, might know you most from your, from they should. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> they should know from uh, projections of power, U.S. and European entanglements in colonial Southeast Asia, 1990-1941, uh, from... From Duke, right? Yeah, yes. um, and uh, yeah, a, uh, a great book. I'm a big fan of of you and your work, and um, and yeah, and you've been a good friend to the to NIU and our students and scholars over the years. So again, thanks for that. Well, thanks for having me back. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you've uh, you've ventured into some some newer research, mm-hmm. and uh, we wanted to sit down and uh, talk a bit about that uh, opium and uh, transnational. Uh, Southeast Asia. So, um, study what you know. What's the uh, <laughs> what's the what, what's the, the what is the uh, what is the attraction? Um, it's kind of an outgrowth of the first book, where I'm really interested in the interactions of the different uh, colonial powers in Southeast Asia and the effects that had on the indigenous peoples and on the the sort of development of Southeast Asia in that time period from the late 19th century to the eve of World War II. Um, I think anything an important part of your your work is 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 thinking um, uh, across the the colonial borders as well right. in terms of in terms of how um, these vectors or other things are happening and moving and that that's and opium's and then and then a really great yeah so opium is by its nature a border crossing product right at this, <laughs> yeah. at this time period it wasn't grown for commercial use in Southeast Asia so all the opium comes from somewhere else that's consumed. Um, and so that's, it sort of starts from that. And then you see that the the commodity itself crosses borders legally and illegally. So that always is interesting when you're looking at smuggling and seeing how that sort of both creates and challenges state power as states try to control smuggling, but never fully can, can control it. And so the ways that they interact with each other. Um, and so that leads to looking at ideas, crossing borders and people crossing borders and all kinds of things. Um, and sort of both helps us understand the creation of the region, Southeast Asia, but also challenges our notions of what that region might be. Can you give us a can you give us a flyover of 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 how opi- opium function your 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 period mostly is is sort of uh, late nineteenth through the through the early twentieth. Um, give us a sense uh, maybe before that of how opium would have functioned in Southeast Asia and maybe Asia more largely. Right. So, <clears throat> so opium is um, a product that was at that time period sort of grown mostly in China and India and um, sort of exported around the region primarily at at the behest of the British first and then other colonial governments, and they use it as part of the mechanism for funding their empires. Um, It's used recreationally, as probably everybody would know, thinking about opium pipes and people smoking opium and opium dens, but it also is an important medical uh, product in the region. Um, And so it's consumed for a lot of different reasons by a lot of different peoples, 
um, colonial governments in the time period at the beginning of my research, sort of in the late 1800s, uh, primarily distribute opium by the means of the opium farm, which is a tax farm. Um, so they auction off the right to sell opium in a particular geographical region, and then they are not that much involved in it. Um, they import the opium and then sell it to the opium farmer who sells it to the people. So it's very profitable for the colonial governments, but they don't have to really administer it at all. Right. So, they, so they're able to kind of outsource the, the trade, the commerce, revenue, even enforcement right. uh, over opium to, to, to the sort of the highest bidder. Um, uh, what, what, are those, uh, what are those revenues in, uh, uh, across, the, across colonial Southeast Asia? Like how, what, what, what kind of percentage of, of the, uh, the income from opium are these, uh, uh, do these states enjoy? So, the, so opium was really profitable for them and really important part of their revenues. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The um, opium uh, provided at least the lowest percentage it provided was about 11% um, in the federated Malay states, and that percentage went up to 53% of the federal government re- or government revenues in the straight settlements. So, 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 so let's let's restate that for the yeah. So, more than half of the colonial revenues. Um, in no. parts of Southeast Asia, in this case, the Strait Settlements, right. uh, were from opium. Right. So, so Strait Settlements is a little bit unusual because all of its revenue came from tax farms. Um, so over alcohol and opium and bird's nests and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Um, but, of course, opium is the most profitable, providing half. Um, but even in states where they had a much wider revenue stream, opium is still somewhere between about 11 and uh, 20% of the total revenue streams. So it's a really significant percentage. If you think today um, in the United States, uh, our payroll taxes are about a third of the total federal government revenue stream. So you sort of as a comparison, that kind of helps you understand wow. opium is significant um, percentage of, of what they're getting. And so they really rely on this. It's, it's a steady, it's that sort of steady income that's going to keep coming in always, no matter what. Um, people, you know, I always say opium creates its own demand, right? It's addictive. And so yeah. once you start taking it, you'll probably continue to consume it. Um, and you're going to put that, you're going to prioritize that consumption, even if the prices change or your job situation changes. So you, you, you highlighted it. It has, uh, um, it, it, it can be taken recreationally then mm-hmm. today and, and then it can, um, it can, it has medicinal use, um, uh, Colonial states were also interested. It had it had a pre in, in sort of its uh, sort of labor and economic um, calculation. How what are some of the ways that opium is function is used by the colonial state? So I think first before we sort of talk about that, it's helpful to think about the status of sort of medical treatment in the nineteenth century. Sure. Sort of actually everywhere in the world, not just in Southeast Asia. Um, so there's no aspirin. Aspirin is not commercially available till the twentieth century. Um, and so there's obviously no ibuprofen and yeah. <laughs> none of those things, right? So if you're looking for pain relief, you're looking at either opiates or alcohol. And, you know, we, we all know um, that probably opiates are going to be more effective for that. Um, so for any kinds of pains that anybody had, they would particularly take opiates. But then in Southeast Asia, you also had other kinds of um, medical uses for it. So against, um, it's as everyone knows, opium is constipating. It's one of those things the doctor would warn you about um, when you take it. And so um, 
people have cholera or dysentery or diarrhea or any of those pretty common. It can be a lifesaver. It can be a lifesaver, actually. Um, so, so it was a really significant medicine throughout the world, but as the conditions for it in Southeast Asia are even more extreme, of course, um, those things being more even yeah. more likely. So when we're talking about sort of the kinds of economic development that's happening in the late 19th and early 20th century in Southeast Asia, we're talking about clearing trees to plant rubber plantations. We're talking about tin mines. We're talking about um, other kinds of activities that are extractive, that are in pretty inhospitable labor, remote areas, yeah. um, or dock workers, you know, like mm. in Singapore or something like that. And so these are people who are suffering pain, who are likely to be exposed to all of those diseases that opium helps with the symptoms of, um, and or um, if if serving the colonial government's purpose as well, are underpaid. Yeah. And another factor for opium is that it suppresses your appetite. So if you have workers who are in pain because they're working too hard, suffering from diarrhea and not getting enough food, opium is a simple solution, sadly, to all of those problems. Um, so this was so, so useful to the, um, the economic enterprises that they sometimes even paid their workers in opium rather than in cash. Yeah, I think that might surprise some of our listeners. That, that, that that's it's it's part of the it's a little currency. Um, exactly. For for and then and then and then it has you know these if you want if you want to work someone to death like um, yeah. that's a that's a it's a wonder drug for that. Um, sad, 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 true. Sadly, yeah. uh, as you point out in your in your in your in your research, um, take us through what are some of the traditional and stereotypical sort of caricatures or images that um that when when opium is talked about uh uh that that are sort of most readily deployed so usually i mean maybe even when people saw the title of this you know podcast they would think to themselves oh opium and they might think about for instance an opium den where you have people sort of lying on the floor and conditions that are not opulent um often even could be squalid um, usually those would be all men also smoking opium in the opium den. <clears throat> so that's one image that we have. Um, for, for opium in Southeast Asia, too, there's quite a few famous photographs that probably most listeners to this podcast have seen at one point or another of the emaciated mm-hmm. um, people who are sort of crouching. and Bones sticking all bones through their sticking skin. Out, yeah. you know, and that's part, the opium is an appetite suppressant and also, um, you know, People don't want to eat because of the constipation part because they will have a hard time with that. And so it is a, it is a consequence that people tend to lose weight. Um, but these are the images that were portrayed oftentimes that are, it's male, that they're emaciated, that they're sort of languid, um, sort of in these kind of squalid conditions. Often, often posed. Right, these, they seem to these be. These photographs that we have in the time period are almost assuredly all posed. Um, so probably, if you were smoking opium, you wouldn't just you know have someone pop in and take care of make sure. Um, <laughs> these aren't these, slice of life. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no. Um, and most of the time, they're posed for particular purposes, either by anti-opium activists, so they're trying to portray the negative side of it or by governments um, for their government reports trying to either say, again, that this is negative or the steps that they're taking to alleviate these conditions. 
So we have to sort of right. take those all those images, I think, with a grain of salt. So let, we'll get into some of these, uh, the, some of the um, the turn against against opium in 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 the colonies. Um, but that, that those those images of of sort of the you know the the effects of the ravages of opium kind of contrast at a certain point with the 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 financial bottom line mm-hmm. that 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 opium um, uh, represents in Southeast Asia, and also you know you had some great uh, and um, fr- from from the Dutch East Indies some great, some some sort of alternative views of of opium. I guess how I guess how. Uh, is there another? What's the other side of the coin to how opium is is portrayed, thought about, used? Right. So, um, opium is because it's also this sort of big revenue stream and part of the government. And governments increasingly want to have control over it. They institute government bureaucracies to oversee the importation, the production, and the sale of opium. So, in the case of the um, Dutch, the Netherlands Indies. They had these massive uh, factories, actually, where people would engage in packing opium into very specific tubes. They were very, the Dutch were very proud of their tubes that were carefully measured to the right amounts that people were supposed to get, um, and also sealed so that they weren't they were supposed to be tamper proof. And so there's really this sort of high standard of production. Um, that meant that the workers in this were engaging in a very industrialized, work environment. Was the tamper proof to preserve the monopoly or to to protect the consumer? I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't the latter or? Um, well, people would, um, I, I think it's mostly to protect the monopoly, but of course people would receive their opium and then bring it back sometimes empty and say it had been tampered with so that they could get more opium. <laughs> um, classic consumer sort of yeah. you know, <laughs> complaint issue. Um, so the Dutch would try to make it so that both it was actually protecting them from having opium stolen before it reached the consumer and then also so the consumers could not sort of double dip um, by claiming that they had not found opium in their carefully packaged tube. Right. So. Um, I mean, the, the example that I know most from is the is sort of the Dutch East Indies. Um, but uh, what role do the do the Chinese tend to play uh, proportionally in in sort of control over opium in in the region? So during the time period of the opium farms, most of the opium quote unquote farmers, the people who 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 successfully bid on the right to sell opium in a particular geographical region, most of the time that person was ethnic Chinese. And so then that ethnic Chinese opium farmer, which often was not just one person, often they were working together because it was so expensive to get like, like would a whole, a would a whole like Kongsi like yeah, come together exactly. and m- control? Like, Depends on the yeah. size of the s- specific opium farm. So sometimes it'd be a whole Kongsi. Sometimes it would be like just uh, uh, four or five people or one yeah. extended family or something like that. Um, can, <clears throat> so do, can we equate it? Is it to say to um, a crime syndicate? Would they would they have um, a, a, a illegal? <laughs> A legal crime syndicate. What? How, right. what? What is? Is there an analogy for for um, how this operates in our own? I guess maybe like private Blackwater in in <laughs> Afghanistan or private security above the law or. Um, yeah, there. I mean, I, I think I think it's it, we have to kind of be careful. I mean, they do have. It's a legal. It's a legal business right. that they're engaged right. in. Um, so so the fact that they're collaborating is mostly to pool resources so that they can yeah. afford it. 
Um, so there is a legal side, and that's I, I think it's important to just take that on its face value at some level. Um, yeah. So, but then of course, once they have the control of the opium farm, um, they they have to buy opium from the government at a set price, and they have control of the sale of opium in a certain geographical space. Um, so the way that they make back the money that they bid to control the farm is by selling a lot of opium. And they'll make that money back quicker if they can get illicit opium that's cheaper than the government opium. Right. So it's, it's kind of a genius business. If you can get, you have a, you have a, a legal monopoly Correct. over, over opium sale and distribution, um, but a control in hype in theory over the, 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 the amounts, the disbursements that are made to you. But if you can, if you can add to your stocks of, of, uh, of, of open alongside the state opium, you can continue to you can sell make lots more money. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so your profit margin on the illicit opium is most likely going to be bigger, um, than on the state, uh, uh, state purchased opium. Um, because the, the, the state did sort of watch and make sure you weren't selling at an excessive price um, that would, they thought, gouge the local person. Um, so it was helpful to them if they could have this Im- illicit opium. So that's where the corruption and the smuggling and the, those kinds of things came into the business. It would be possible to run your opium farm without that, um, but the, I, there's no known opium farmer who did that. I, I've seen, I've seen uh, sort of... There's the old, like, you know, 19th century saw about the, the VOC stands for Frajano de Corrupci. That it, you know, it, it's it's corruption takes this thing down, and and uh, you know, from from spice monopolies to to to, to opium, like the, the, the pointing a finger at the at the um, European agents themselves as as participants. Um, do is there is there strong evidence for that that the um, uh, rather than seeing maybe the Chinese as, you know, as the illicit smugglers, right. on, I mean, th- there has to be a significant role that the the state aid, the, the the incentives for for bribery could have to be just massive. Yes. Um, so there is some. Um, there has been some some investigation into that, but that is actually, a, I think, uh, an open... So anyone who's listening who's looking for a dissertation project, um, because this is, you know, there's there's not been... There's not there's been remarkably little literature, actually, on pre-1945 opium. I mean, it seems like there should that should be an attractive topic to um, everybody. And, and there is certainly... There are some excellent works, um, which I have built on and I'm very grateful for, but there's so many parts of it that still understudied and so I think that's people have focused a lot on the ethnic Chinese in the way because they were the most prevalent and they're the ones who are running the opium opium farms but um, there's obviously a lot of interactions with the European uh, officials lots of opportunities for bribery some opportunity a lot of the Europeans would have said they sort of just looked the other way and they didn't want to know like they just took mm-hmm. their money their legal money and ran um, but there's lots of opportunities from for inspectors and things like that to not notice once some money crossed their palm <laughs> as well um, but that has not the, the the that has not been studied as much as one would would it hope. be like and 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 you, you made this analogy a bit but like sort of cigarettes it's it's not something that's illegal. Right. But but it's it's controlled and regulated, and so if you're able to 
smuggle in um, supplies of cigarettes into uh, uh, into a, a highly regulated regulated environment. You can. Yeah. So I mean, we I, I, here in the Midwest we don't really do this, I guess. But in New York <laughs> State, it's pretty common, right? In New York City, if you walk down the street, you can buy cigarettes from people who are selling them on the street. Well, those people mostly went up to the Mohawk reservation and purchased those cigarettes with no yeah. tax and now they're reselling them that's it's illegal to resell them it's not illegal to have gone to purchase them um but you can buy them cheaper because the the taxes are like three quarters of the price of the pack. right um, so it's Uh, so, Anne, tell us about um, some of the basics of, of, of opium. Um, you've laid out some interesting kind of baseline statistics for um, for how it's used and, and how it's distributed. Okay. So um, it's we would think that in Southeast Asia, primarily people are smoking opium. That's the primary method of consumption. There are... In South Asia, so some a little bit in Burma, people um, drank opium. Some something like the laudanum that's common in um, in Europe, but laudanum contains alcohol as well as opium. And the South Asian version of drinking it was more like a tea. Um, but most of Southeast Asia, they would the traditional method of consumption was smoking. Um, and so, if I could interject, sure. so is um, is it, am I right in assuming that sort of medicinally um, you know, taking raw opium uh, and the difference between just in ingesting that uh, as opposed to um, smoking it um, mm-hmm. is you're ratcheting up a level of of, of effectiveness or of, of impact? Um, I think that, it, I mean, it, it's not necessarily more, um, people feel it more immediately, Rather than it being actually stronger, so when you smoke it, it immediately enters. Rather into than your if, you, if you swallow a, a if you swallow ball a pill, it yeah. has to you know yeah. dissolve and then yeah. go into your bloodstream. So okay. this, the smoking is not. It, it may actually, in some cases, be less potent um, to smoke it, but it has this immediate effect um, that you immediately feel a relaxation or relief of pain or things like that. And so um, there are some people who also eat opium. In Southeast Asia, um, which primarily means just to swallow, not to like chew on it and enjoy it like a meal, um, but the, just the method of sort of swallowing it. Um, so, and then sometimes in Southeast Asia, it's mixed with other things and made to be weaker, primarily because people can't afford it um, or for the taste, sort of like how people might, you know, mix their tobacco with something. Um, and, and have a different right. flavor to the smoking of it. So, 
So so not there's not a there's not a major uh, quantitative difference, but as opposed to sort of refining it into to heroin, then it takes a yeah a pretty when does it is it refined in the colonial period? I don't know. So yeah, so um, heroin is invented in 1910, I believe, something like that. Um, no, that's not right. 1890, sorry. Heroin is invented in 1890, and and also there's morphine that begins to be available in this time period. Very few people in Southeast Asia, ordinary people in Southeast Asia, could have afforded morphine or heroin. So that's not a very common method of use until, until the 1920s and 30s begins to be some use. So when you refine it into morphine and then again into heroin, which is stronger than morphine, both of those... Um, really change people's consumption of opium because there's no no longer any sort of social ritual about it, right? Um, so when you consume her, um, opium in any of the traditional ways that it's consumed in Asia, there's a social ritual about it. That ritual may not look very appealing if you're smoking it, you know, after your 12-hour shift in the tin mine, but there still is a sort of a ritual right. that happens that makes it partly about then the the drug itself and then partly like for any of us whatever our social ritual of relaxation is at the end of the day you know whether it's having a cup of herbal tea even if you just had a hot water you'd get something out of that does right? so does do you think having it um embedded in a in a in a social ritual means that we the the kind of the the incidences of 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 sort of wild overuse um don't seem to be as pronounced. They, 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 I mean, I guess before it's used and encouraged heavily by Europeans, um, does it seem to be safer? Yeah, I mean, so for for most for 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 most drugs, and including opium, whenever it's consumed in the region where it originates or is typically grown, and whenever it's consumed as part of a social practice. Um, and embedded in a, in a societal-wide social practice, um, it ten, there tends to be a low level of addiction. Um, Interesting. It's not impossible. I mean, we know, like, yeah. people become alcoholics, people get addicted to tobacco, everything like that. Um, but typically, wherever they're from, the, the levels of addiction are the lowest. And it seems that there's about somewhere between 6 and 15% of people are, have, have a tendency to be addicted to whatever substance. Um, so you can keep it at that low level by having it be part of a social ritual. So that's, um, even in Southeast Asia, once the Europeans are pushing the consumption of opium, it goes up, but a lot of people were still not addicted to it. Um, they might really like it and want to consume it. Um, so, but they, but they might not experience the technical medical definition of addiction in that if they had it taken away from them, they wouldn't have a physical reaction to it. They might say, oh man, I really miss that, but they wouldn't necessarily have an addictive component to that. Um, there's some evidence that the people who were the poorest people who consumed opium, um, didn't consume enough opium also to become physically addicted to it. I don't, it's very hard to tell. Like, we don't probably have records that would mm-hmm. help us understand that. Um, more likely, they were addicted to that brief moment of not feeling pain <laughs> yeah. rather than physically to the opium. And so still sought it out as with that same degree of urgency, but it wasn't because of the tech, technical medical definition of addiction. So so tell us what the 
what the experience might have been like for uh, a consumer, like sort of at the at the storefront. Like what? How how does that how does that look and feel? Right. So. Um, during the period, uh, both of the opium farm and into the government monopolies, typically the when people went to the place where you purchase opium, um, most of the time only men went to purchase opium. So if women were, were if women were consuming opium, typically someone was bringing it to them in their home. Sometimes there were special places just for women to go, but typically women would not consume opium in the same physical space as a man. Um, and this was enforced more strictly under the government monopolies than it had been under the opium farms. And so people would go there, and um, during the period of the government monopolies, they actually usually had to be registered. Um, and so you had to identify you in a register, and you would have to sign your name and huh. um, or indicate who you are if you didn't if you weren't literate. And you were uh, the the later it got in the period of government monopoly, they would also often say how much you were allowed to have. And so... Um, you're, you're, you're grinning like a historian. Have you seen those records, those, those, <laughs> those, those registers? Yeah. Uh, there aren't very many of those registers still existing, sadly. Um, so, yeah, no, I know that would be really amazing if we could see yeah. that. But um, the, they, those were mostly either purposefully or just as a matter of course destroyed during World War II. And people obviously were not that keen um, to have some of those things exist. Yeah, and I imagine that the, the, the with the illicit part of the, the, the kind of double books, like, the, you know, like, you, you, there, there has to be a incentive <laughs> so, to not keep records. Well, <laughs> actually, what happened more often, um, opium didn't have, the opium consumption didn't have a huge stigma for people. Um, in some ways, uh, it's, it's, it, it the stigma grew, and so that's why people were less likely to want it later. But what happened more often is more people would sign up than who actually consumed opium because you would if the government kept saying, this is going to be your only chance to sign up, and if you don't sign up as an opium user now, then you'll never be able to use opium. Um, and so people would go ahead and sign up, and then they would get an preemptively. Allotment. <laughs> they would yeah. get an allotment, or they would sign up as a business proposition, right? So they would, like record uh, keeping. You know, the Dutch were pretty good about it, as probably no one is surprised to learn. But the other colonial governments were sometimes a little more lax, and so especially in Burma, people would sign up in more than one place. Um, so they would go to several different places where, like, different. Um, administrative units um, and sign up for for this and so they could then collect opium and then sell it illicitly. Um, so the, I, I would love to see the record books, but at another level, I wouldn't trust them to necessarily right. reflect anything that was real. <laughs> so, yeah, good, fair um, point. <laughs> um, yeah, but then people, so people would be, be given their um, allotment or before that was fully implemented, they would just purchase however much they wanted. And most of the time under the government monopoly, you were supposed to consume your opium at that time. Um, again, I'm, I would suspect this is a rule that was obeyed in the breach. Like, like at the opium den? Yeah, like you right were supposed the, yeah. to then right away consume it so that obviously the point of that was so there would be no leakage to uh-huh. people who weren't authorized users. Um, but p- people didn't enjoy that. I mean, that yeah, was not there. Right. But it's so, almost like it's almost like a methadone right, exactly. clinic model. Right. And and they sort of the the 
Europeans had kind of that idea. Like we should facilitate, these people are addicted or have this need and we should facilitate them um, continuing that, but we're going to try to eradicate this practice. So we'll make it as unpleasant as possible. So. Interesting. Um, do you want to tell us about what are the transnational politics of opium? So um, this is actually how I sort of got interested in this project. Um, so uh, the the very first time I sort of started thinking about opium, I was in the Netherlands doing research for my first book, and um, I had a box and it had all these folders with the folder titles opium. So even though I wasn't supposed to be reading those, of course I had to read those. <laughs> this is how we all find our best projects, right, is by reading yeah. the folders we're not supposed to read. Um, but the Dutch were complaining in in one of these documents about the fact that the the U.S. government in the Philippines had f- forbidden open, opium there, prohibited opium, um, which was when the government, the Dutch government had their own monopoly and were selling it themselves. Um, and the reason they were upset about this was not because of any concern about what was happening in the Philippines, but because they said it's increasing the economies of scale for the smugglers. So the smugglers are already smuggling into the Philippines now, what the heck, they'll use those same boats and those same people to smuggle into the Indies and undercut the Dutch monopoly, um, undercutting their profits. So that was the beginning of my sense that opium is a pro- has transnational politics to it, right? This, pro- this product, yeah. this commodity, you can't just have this prohibition in one country. It's going to be something that affects the region as a whole. Um, because it, right, those porous borders, <laughs> those porous borders, opium is going to cross yeah. the borders. People have, you know, they have good capitalists all over <laughs> and they're going to make their money. Um, so I started to investigate that and, and so there's a few ways in which opium politics are transnational. One of which is the significant one is smuggling. There's smuggling throughout the region and that leads the, um, colonial governments to collaborate with one another to track smugglers, um, trade in what we would now call intelligence. So they're trading state secrets about who is smuggling. They help track um, ships from one country to another, shipments, people. There's in the government records of all of the colonial governments, there's um, lists of smugglers who they sent around, um, aliases of smugglers, (laughs) um, all kinds of things. the politics of prohibition are also transnational in that the United States, um, the United States did not prohibit opium when it first acquired the Philippines in 1898, uh, but within a few years, by 1905, had passed prohibition for the Philippines and implemented it by 1908. Um, there's some irony to that for because it, opium was still at that point completely legal in the United States until 1914. So the Philippines was sort of the um, pr- it, it, proving ground. Yeah, is that I was going to say, is that yet another case of the let's let's try it out in the empire first? Um, I think it wasn't it wasn't um, this sort of deliberate. Let's have a sort of laboratory f- mm-hmm. with the Philippines. It wasn't like that. Um, it was more that the people who were opposed to opium were more successful in lobbying for it in the Philippines. They used a sort of language of we're supposed to be civilizing them and you know, helping them, and then we're promoting opium. And, so. and these, are mis- these are missionaries, missionaries right, that, right are, exactly. that are leading this. Yeah. And um, I asked you this before, but the, the, maybe you could speak about the, some of the connections between the temperance movement and, and 
in the in the United States against um, alcohol and 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 drugs and and in the in, in the Philippines. Right. So so the main um, mission. So it's kind of funny because there were in the in the Philippines the 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 missionaries were Methodists and Episcopalians and the Episcopalians initially were not that concerned about opium or alcohol, right? They're all about yeah. they're all about that. But the other ones, the Methodists were very anti-opium um, and, of course, anti-alcohol, and they connected these things uh, together. Yeah. And so Wilbur Crafts was one of the most prominent of these missionaries, and they had experience in China, and that's part of their... Um, so they brought an anti-alcohol sentiment with them, but they also had learned to be more anti-opium by their mission work in China. Um, and so they, they, they saw these things as all quote unquote intoxicating and they wanted to ban all intoxicating products. Um, so they got, uh, thousands literally of, uh, fellow Methodists in the United States to send telegrams to President Roosevelt, um, advocating, the prohibition of opium. Interesting. So, so people who who may not have known where the Philippines were probably. on a map um, yeah. <laughs> probably didn't. <laughs> that suddenly, like here's the here's this here's this cause that we need to we need to. Yeah, and they were. I mean, that's. I don't know. I've never seen anything like that amount of sort of public mail about anything related to Southeast Asia in the U.S. government records. Because um, hmm. I, yeah. I saw, I mean, I didn't look at every telegram. They were relatively similar to each other, but there were folders and folders full of these telegrams. Maybe not to like Kent State. We have like a <laughs> Southeast Asia <laughs> raises a, exactly. uh, a public guy. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, I like that. That's a good, uh, good um Name name this you know the most uh, <laughs> the most lobbied uh, the, the most publicly white conscious Southeast Asia. Um, some of the, the re- related to the politics, but what were some of the transnational economics that that were involved in the in in opium? So um, the the most important thing is that the the in this time period from the late 19th to the mid 20th century is when Southeast Asian products become really important in industrial, the development of the industrial world economy. Um, so we have rubber, we have tin, um, you know, we have teak, all of these products that are really significant for the world economy developing coming from Southeast Asia. And the, all of those, um, products are mostly either extractive or going to be newly grown in areas where trees have to be cleared and they're relatively remote and hard to live in. And so the laborers who did all of that work were the people who were being paid in opium that we talked about earlier. They are the ones who are consuming opium as part of the sort of underpinning of their daily lives. And um, in addition to that, then, of course, the the governments um, which are facilitating this economic development in the colonies are de- are dependent economically on opium. So I say without opium to sort of oil those skids, I guess you could say grease those skids, um, it would be very difficult to imagine how Southeast Asia could have economically developed all those natural resources um, as quickly and as effectively as it did. Yeah, that's a... Yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't think about that, but that's actually like a, a really important point like from from the it's this it's the shoehorn to um so many so many of the other sort of exploitative um resource intense 
I mean, this is, it's a huge boom time economically for yeah. Southeast Asia. And you just can't imagine how you can't that mine, could You have can't mine tin or tap rubber or... Not in the quantities yeah. and at the speed and with the low wages that happened. Um, you know, Southeast, yeah. Southeast Asia, like we all learned this from the beginning, um, Southeast Asian labor will leave <laughs> environments that it doesn't find yeah. um, compelling. They have so options, yeah. They have options. And so... Um, uh, opium was one way to reduce those options for them um, and make them stay and do that work. What is opium's connection to to public health? So uh, when I started this project, as I was sort of just talking about, um, I really saw the restrictions on opium and the uh, emphasis on opium in this late 19th, early 20th century time period as, as traditional political debate and then having this economic consequence. But as I've been um, writing my book, the the medical side of it began to really become a much more significant explanatory factor of what was happening with opium in this time period as well. Because at the beginning of this time period, um, we don't really have understanding of germ theory, so people don't know how diseases work. They don't know, mm. therefore, that cleaning up the sewers is going to help reduce cholera. <laughs> They're beginning to understand that. Um, they don't, people don't have access to quinine at the beginning of this time period, really, or not much. Um, but by the end of this time period, people are really, they are beginning to understand how to prevent disease, um, how to cure disease to some degree, and um, how to reduce the symptoms of diseases without using opium. So opium at the beginning of this time period is a medicine that's absolutely necessary for people to live in the feel in the feel reasonably healthy they it's the only way to relieve pain and it's a most a, a significant way to relieve some other significant medical symptoms by the end of this time period um, we begin to see that people have some understanding of how to relieve those problems without using opium however most southeast Asians don't have access to those solutions yeah. They don't have access to quinine, which is still too expensive. They don't have access to vaccines to prevent some of the uh, communicable diseases. They don't still have access to clean water or proper sanitation. And so they still need opium as a medicine, but opium's status as a medicine has been undercut by the development of these more effective measures. So it's kind of a tragic situation. So there's this, there's this window until, like... Modern public health becomes available and, and overlapping with opium becoming um, or, 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 so, or demonized or phased out. Yeah, so in, the, so in the period from the 1920s to the start of World War II, um, opium becomes gradually more and more restricted and more and more demonized. Right? People begin to see opium as a recreational drug choice because most of the medical things that it solved can be solved in other ways. Um, so they start to say the only reason for consuming opium is in order to get the quote-unquote yeah. high. Um, and so, but, the, but those medical d innovations are not yet available to most Southeast Asians. Um, and so it's kind of, they're kind of in a bind because opium becomes less and less available to them. It's more, just more restricted. Um, and yet they don't have yet the modern medicines or the public health features that would help them um, feel better, have, have a healthier life. Those, you know, obviously don't come in until well after World War II is over. So we've got a we've got a few publications out of this, and like the social history of alcohol and drugs. Yeah. Is this headed to a monograph? What can, it what is can headed see? to a monograph. So um, I have 
probably half of the book written, and this public health part sort of rose up in my yeah. in my sense that it really needs to that needs to be investigated a little bit more. So um, I'm doing a little more research. I'll be back in Europe next fall for a little bit more research, um, and hopefully finish that up soon. Well, um, thank you for uh, for enlightening us, and uh, we'd love to have you back soon when it's ready to talk about it. Sounds good. I would love to come back. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinzer for today's music, and Ji Yu for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听，我们下次再见。Thank、you